Talofalava and good evening, everyone. I'd like to first thank the New Zealand Book Council for this opportunity. Tonight's lecture is dedicated to my father, to our Pepe, Dr. Felix Wendt, who smashed down walls so I didn't have to, believed in my writing long before I did, and always encouraged the fire of my fiapoto. He could not be here tonight. Wellington is just too cold for him. But that is why I am so grateful to have uh, members of my Ainga here tonight from both my Samoan and my Māori side, and in particular, my great uncle, uh, Basi, who is here, uh, standing in as a representative for my dad. So thank you so much for being here. So let's begin. There is a great and spacious building standing tall on a hill looking out to the distant ocean. A castle, imagine it if you will. Its white walls are built high and strong. They hold back the tangle of forest that threatens to encroach on its territory. Its looming gates are impenetrable. They open only for those with the right credentials. Sentries atop its walls trumpet the promise of accolades, influence, maybe even a fat royalties check for all who enter. It has a tower with a beacon that shines through night and day. Its light beckons, promising safety, security, and success. It says, I know the way, I see what you can't, I know what you don't. Follow me and I will guide you. It's an unregulated wilderness out there and nobody knows what they're doing, but those within the castle know the way. They see what you can't, they know what you don't, or do they? To begin, I bring you a story from the wild. A few years ago, I was invited to go to Philadelphia to help design the curriculum for a writing skills course. It was going to be a MOOC, a massive open online course that's often interactive, it's aimed at unlimited participation and open access. The purpose of the course was to encourage more children's stories from writers in developing countries in the Commonwealth, a goal that I can certainly support. We were a diverse group of writers in that planning room, all from different parts of the world, and I was the representative from Oceania. We'd all written stories for young readers, but, as is so often the case, I was the only self-published author in the room. As we started putting the outline of the course together, I suggested we should have everyone who takes the course start a blog to get them writing online. They can build an audience, engage with other writers and readers all around the world. That could be one of their ongoing assignments, blog regularly. The response to my suggestion was unexpected. The coordinator said, but Lani, Perhaps you don't understand the scale of this online course. If it's a success, there will literally be thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of people taking it. I said, yes, and? The rest of the group chimed in with horror. But Lani, what if they all do the assignment and start a blog? That means there will be hundreds of thousands of new blogs from new writers or from developing countries. Oh no. 
I quickly realized that what was freaking them out the most was the idea of writers publishing writing that hadn't first been quality controlled by some certified expert. This became even more apparent when I proposed that at the end of the course, we offer guidelines for how people could publish their own books online. See, I told you I was via photo, I hadn't learned my lesson. It was as if I was proposing we usher in the zombie apocalypse. Oh no, they said, we can't do that. It's far too soon for them to publish their work. There was a consensus among the English professors, editors, and traditionally published authors in the room, in other words, everybody except me, that by the end of the course, a person would know the basics of writing a story and have completed a portfolio of pieces that they could continue to refine. But publish any of it, oh, hell to the no. I learned a great deal from participating in that project, and I am grateful to have had that opportunity. For me, though, that experience illustrates some common reactions whenever the topic of literature in the digital age is raised. There's often anxiety, fear, distrust, even some confusion. And I often see a rush to reinforce the battlements, circle the wagons, protect the cannon, and strengthen the walls. Why is this? What are you afraid of? Today, we hear many troubling things about the impact of the digital age on reading. There's surveys showing that young people just aren't reading books anymore because they're online on their phones. I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. It's not just the youth. It's a lot of us old folks, too. I mean, I saw all you with your phones. <laughs> Research is showing that online surfing and skim reading is having lasting effects on our brains, resulting in what is called a subtle atrophy of critical analysis and empathy. As Marianne Wolfe explains, this affects our ability to navigate a constant bombardment of information, leaving us susceptible to false information and demagoguery. Donald Trump, anybody? There are also many bemoaning the impact of the digital age on the business of traditional publishing. Amazon is squeezing out local bookshops, publishers are going bust, writers aren't getting the advances they used to. E-book piracy is devastating the book industry. But most disturbing of all, according to some, is that now there are gazillions of people publishing their crappy books online, books that haven't been edited, indie authors are flooding the markets with trash, and making it impossible for good writing to get noticed. It's not fair, some say. What about standards, quality control? There's a reason why we have gatekeepers. Listening to them, it would seem that the zombie apocalypse is well and truly upon us. The castle is under threat. Now, to delve into what it means to be a reader in this digital age, I think we must first talk about what it was like before something that the young people in the room won't know much about. When my children found out that I can remember a time before the smartphone, they were horrified. Mom, you grew up before the internet was invented? Were there dinosaurs too? Did you have flush toilets? 
I don't know what the connection is between flush toilets and uh, the internet, but never mind. Yes, I say, I grew up in the dark ages. During a time when this was the only way that you could read a book. As we know, these are bulky, they are expensive to print, and even more expensive to transport. It costs more to send this book to Samoa than it does to print it. So I grew up knowing what it means to hunger and thirst for books. And for those of you who are my age and older, you would know probably this too. The Samoa of my childhood only had one public library and one bookstore. And that bookstore had a preference for stocking Bibles. An exciting, bloodthirsty book, to be sure. But still not enough for a voracious reader like me. I was blessed to grow up in a home that valued reading. But still, there were just never enough books. I spent lots of my time begging, borrowing, and sneak reading whenever I could. So what did I read? Anything I could get my hands on. Outdated encyclopedias, dictionaries, the thesaurus, there's a reason why I know so many words, dusty classics in the library, everything from Great Expectations to The Three Musketeers to Wuthering Heights. When I was 11, I read War and Peace, not because I wanted to, I read it because that's all there was. Books were my escape. They were dreams made real. I wanted to drink ginger beer and eat treacle on toast next to the fireplace with the secret seven and the famous five. I longed to be brave and daring like Trixie Belden and Nancy Drew. Then at age 12, I discovered romance novels. I went straight from the pixies in the faraway tree to the heaving bosoms and throbbing manhood of Harlequin romance and Mills and Boone. Not quite age appropriate, but at that time, there weren't really any young adult novels to bridge the gap. And of course, everything that I read was written by Balangi authors and set in mainly Balangi places. When I did come across characters who looked vaguely like me, they were the dirty thieving gypsies in the English countryside, thank you, Enid Blyton, darky Kalormans in the world of Narnia, exotic Arabian sheikhs who romanced blushing virginal white women. Harper Lee said they needed a white savior in segregated America. Even my fangirl favorite author, Laura Engels Wyder, told me that the only good Indian is a dead Indian, and that the land her family moved into had no people, only Indians lived there. But I read all her books anyway, because what else was there? And besides, I was so used to stories where I didn't exist that I had accepted that people like me did not belong in novels anyway. In secondary school, something amazing happened. I encountered the work of Oceania poets and storytellers for the first time. Only short fiction and poems, though, because our school couldn't afford to buy class sets of novels. I was, of course, the legend, the father of Pacific literature, Albert Went. At the time, my favorite, though, was Witi Ihimaira. His stories had me laughing and enthralled. For the first time, I saw myself and my friends on the page, brown teenagers, our humor, angst, and the messy warmth of our extended families. 
I wanted more, but I couldn't find it. I wondered, where was our fantasy, magic, and science fiction set in Pacifica? Where were our romance stories? I asked, well, if there are no stories like this from Oceania, what about other non-Palangi countries and cultures? By then, I was a student in America attending a private school for girls. Now, it had a good library, and the mall had so many bookstores, it made my head spin. My constant hunger for books was somewhat appeased. But now I was back to searching for stories by and about people who looked like me, and I was often left wanting. Being a voracious reader before the digital age meant you were often hungry, always searching, and even when you did get books, you were fed an insufficient diet of whiteness only. The famine was even worse if you were LGBT, or fafafine, faatama, takatapui, fakaleiti, mahu, vakasalewalewa, fakavafine, palopau, akavaine. Young adult novels with positive, authentic characters who were third gender did not exist when I was a teenager. Now, this made no sense to me because I grew up in a community and in a country where this fluidity was our reality. So, that was then. How about now? Have things improved since I was a child scrabbling for books in Samoa? Janice Freegard surveyed New Zealand fiction titles published in 2015 and found that 91% were written by Pākehā, 4% by Māori, 4% by Asian and Indian writers, and 1% by Pasifika. That was the year that Uncle Albert put out a book. The year 2014 was equally dismal, with only 7% of titles by Māori, even though they make up nearly 16% of the population, 5% by Asian and Indian, even though they are 12% of the population, and no Pacifica novelists were published in 2014, because Uncle Albert can't put out our book every year. Now, I doubt things have changed that much in the last couple of years. If it's any comfort, though, New Zealand certainly isn't alone. In 2018 in the UK, figures show that of the 9,000-plus children's books published over the previous 12 months, only 4% featured black and minority ethnic characters. Only 1% had a character of color as lead. In many cases, those stories were about social justice issues, rather than mystery, magic, or fun. We don't get to have mystery, magic, or fun. According to a recent report from Book Trust Represents, covering 2007 to 2017, only 2% of published UK children's authors and illustrators are from a black and minority ethnic background. As we know, in the United States, it's pretty dreadful, too. Black Americans wrote or illustrated just 3% of books, only 7% by Asian and Pacific, and 1% by Native Americans or First Nations writers. But it's not just the authors and the stories. A diversity baseline survey of publishing companies across North America provided a statistical snapshot of everyone else working in publishing, ranging from editors to shelf stockers. It showed that as an industry, publishing is white and female. It would be interesting to do a similar survey here in New Zealand. So why is this castle of literature so white? Is it because the rest of us just aren't storytellers? 
that's what they asked me on the project last night. They said, you know, maybe you all just aren't writing any books. Even though our ancestors used oral storytelling to pass on our history and culture to their children, maybe we haven't quite mastered the intricacies of the written language of our colonizers enough to knock out a novel. Even though we were punished in school for speaking our indigenous languages, many of us had parents who made sure we spoke better English than the Queen because they knew that English was the language that would get us into university and ensure success. So maybe that's not it. Perhaps we don't write books because we actually don't like to read. That's why there's no books by brown people in your local bookshop. We're too busy playing rugby, eating corned beef and KFC, being doll bludgers, cheeky darkies, leeches, and fruit pickers. Or is there another reason why the castle of literature is so white? Indian author Arundhati Roy said in her 2004 Sydney Peace Prize lecture, there's really no such thing as the voiceless. There are only the deliberately silenced or the preferably unheard. In other words, it's not an accident. Are we being deliberately silenced in this country? By whom? Are we preferably unheard? Why? There are many reasons why a monocultural literature is a problem. A lack of diversity not only influences how diverse people see themselves, but how we are seen or not seen by those of the dominant culture. The effect of this is far-reaching and insidious, manifesting in spheres far beyond bookstores and libraries. This is not just about books, about brown people on the shelf. Another story from the wild. In 2017, I attended the UN Climate Conference in Germany. I found myself sitting in a press conference given by a team of researchers about a report they had prepared on climate change migration options for two Pacific Island countries. Now, as you know, our connection to land goes beyond the physical. It's spiritual. And so the threat of forced migration is an issue of great importance to us, and quite an emotional one. A few minutes into that presentation, I was deeply uncomfortable. The panel of earnest white men spoke of Ni Vanuatu family structure, village organization, cultural values and practices. Now, while the team had worked with local people when doing their research, there was not a single Ni Vanuatu in the room. There were no Pacifica people in the audience, apart from myself and a Fijian colleague, and we were only there because of this first ever one-off Pacific Journalist Fellowship. In that moment, I wondered, how many times has this happened in the past? How many times have international organizations paid experts from G7 countries to study us and write stories, uh, reports, about us? And then gather in rooms like that one and talk about us while we're not there. Now, while I don't discount the accuracy of their research, I had questions, so many Fiaporto questions. Like, how can you sit here and talk about a people and a culture that isn't yours and not feel bad? 
How can you make recommendations about a country and a community to the global body that decides on billion-dollar funding for climate issues and not cringe inside? How can you not see the disconnect? Look at the panel. Look around the room. Ask yourself, who is missing from the conversation? Who should be here and isn't? Whose voice should be leading this discussion? And I go to many conferences, and I ask those same questions many times. Me and the other token brown person are the only ones asking those questions. Now, to me, with my climate justice hat on, that room represented much of what is wrong with international climate change discourse and policymaking today. What's that got to do with literature? I would argue that we can trace the origins of this back to the simple fact that we are surrounded every day by stories where entire groups of people are missing or are misrepresented, included only as a token stereotype. It is not just about making sure that brown kids get to see themselves on the page. No. It is about making sure that everybody else gets to see us too. If we are missing from the stories in the classroom, the library, the TV, the movie screen, then do we even exist? Will the powerful even notice when we're not in the room, not participating in the conversation, not invited to the table? And so, when there is hand-wringing and wailing about cracks in the wall of the white castle of literature, I find it difficult to sympathize. Why should I mourn the supposed decline of an industry that didn't make room for me anyway? A structure that either erases my existence or that is directly hostile towards people like me and other marginalized people is not a structure that I want to prop up. So, how is the digital age helping to change the status quo? First, by making books more accessible and affordable. Data from the UN shows that more than six billion of the world's population now have access to a working mobile phone. Phones are plentiful in places where books are scarce, making them a game-changer for literacy. In 2014, UNESCO released the results of a year-long study that looked at the mobile phone reading habits of nearly 5,000 people across seven developing countries. The study found that 62% of adults and children are reading more now that they can read on their phones. Reasons given were convenience, affordability, and a lack of access to print books. One in three people said that they read to their children from their mobile phones. School teachers in remote areas talked about reading e-books to their students. The study found that there's a demand for mobile reading platforms with text in local languages and for more books written by local authors. I was delighted to see that the most popular genre for readers in the survey was romance, of course, and that books written by authors of color were top of the list of most read. So sure, most of us, when we have a choice, we prefer to read a real book rather than one on our phones. But the reality is that many people don't have that choice. I get messages from readers of all ages from around the Pacific who have thanked me for writing a story they could see themselves in, 
a story they were only able to access because they got it as an ebook download, sometimes an illegal one. Remembering my childhood hunger for books, I cannot even be upset in this instance about book piracy. When we fret about how phones are ruining the reading habits of our youth, let's be mindful of the privileged position we are speaking from. Secondly, the digital era means more diverse stories are being written and published. I mean, that's why I'm up here. In 2010, when I was finishing up my young adult novel, there were only three Samoan novelists in the whole wide world, Albert Went, Savea Sanomalifa, and Sia Figel. Went's first novel was published in 1973. Incidentally, the year I was born. Malifa's in 1993, and Figel's first book in 1996. These authors paved the way. Went in particular, the acknowledged father of Pacific Lit, has produced an extensive epic body of work. But for more than 40 years, the industry only made room for three of us. In that time, how many others were rejected or had their voices stifled. In 2011, I approached more than 30 different publishers and agents in New Zealand, Australia, and America. They said my novel wouldn't have enough of a market, so I published Telesa myself, making me the fourth Samoan novelist in the whole wide world, but very much an unsanctioned one doing unregulated things out in the wilderness. I went on to write and publish more novels, all of which quickly found an international audience thanks to the reach of Amazon and to the power of social media. Now it's 2019, a space of eight years. I am excited to tell you that in that time, there are eight more Samoan novelists that I know of. There could be more. Seven of the eight are women. All of them are self-published, all of them have multiple novels that they are taking to audiences worldwide thanks to digital publishing. What do we learn from this? When we abide by the castle's rules, we're allowed three Samoan novelists in 40-plus years. Lucky us. But when we don't wait for permission or approval, we get more books in a range of genres from more of us. Books that we can see ourselves in, where we are the center and not the marginalized other. This is, of course, not a phenomenon limited to Samoan writers. Thanks to indie publishing online, you can now read a multitude of novels written by authors from many different countries and cultures, and by many more LGBTQI authors. You can go on and search book categories for world mythology, folk tales, neurodiverse characters, multicultural and interracial romance, LGBT science fiction and fantasy, and just the possibilities are endless. Thirdly, the digital era is redefining what a text is and expanding the parameters of the reading experience. And here's where I feel like I am a dinosaur because I need my children to explain it all to me. It's not just about a book that you can download anymore. My teenagers are reading a range of web comics, 
on things called Webtoon and Lezen uh, and online manga sites. Web comics, for those of you who don't know them, because I didn't, have the beauty and artistry of graphic novels. There are multiple apps and sites where creators are publishing story content, which is often multilingual. Most of them are free. The most popular comics and graphic novels feature a diverse representation of people of color and LGBTQI characters. There's other kinds of books that are wildly popular. There are gaming storytelling apps like The Arcana and Mystic Messenger. And once again, I had to have my kids show me all this stuff. So you remember when we were younger, the choose-your-own-adventure storybooks? It's exactly like that. You choose your character, and motion art lets you decide how the story will unfold. Written text appears on the screen, and depending on the game, plot lines can be action-filled and immersive. And again, a key draw card is that they feature diverse characters and also enable LGBT romance storylines. Then, of course, there's the juggernaut of online storytelling, fan fiction sites. And I know some of you are on those. Arguably, the greatest of these is called Archive of Our Own, AO3. It has about five million works that have been created by its nearly two million registered users. Its legend status was recognized earlier this year by a Hugo Award nomination. Now, some people like to sneer at fan fiction as being clumsy amateur work. But you know, when you spend time on the AO3 site, it is, you get swept away by some really excellent storytelling. As academic Casey Feisler explains, fan fiction is about spending more time in the worlds you love and exploring characters beyond the page. It's also about critiquing source texts, pushing back against harmful narratives, adding and correcting certain types of representation including the ways that women and LGBTQI people are portrayed in these genres. So this means, if you love Lord of the Rings, but you're annoyed that there's so few women in there, or if you are frustrated by the racism and white savior complex in Game of Thrones, you can get on AO3 and read alternate versions. Or you can take it a step further Critique the original by writing your own, and then engage with other dedicated fans in the comments. When I enter these storytelling worlds that give the reader so much power and choice, I'm amazed that anybody still buys a book off the shelf at all. Finally, the digital age is challenging the status quo for what quality literature is and who gets to define it. For so long, it has been white males and then white female standards of quality control. They decide who gets admitted to the castle and who is rejected. That paradigm is now threatened because anybody can publish. And it's a bit terrifying to those who for so long have been used to defining what good means. Today, the real gatekeepers are readers. And for many, their standards of quality are a bit different from those in the castle. Recently, I spoke to a young Tongan woman I know. She's an avid reader and writer of AO3 fanfiction. And she explained, sure, some of my favorite writers on AO3 might not have the same level of editing or proofreading as in a novel that I could buy in a bookshop. 
but I can trust them to write stories that don't make me feel bad about myself as a lesbian woman of color. Another little story from the wild. I did a book tour to Hawaii, where I was hosted for a day on that tour by a high school where the student body of 2,000 plus is 94% Asian or Pacific Islander. I was overwhelmed by the enthusiastic welcome and the amount of preparation that had gone into my visit. The program included student performances, dances, speeches, and they also put on a fashion show of their designs that had been inspired by characters and themes in my Telesa books. In particular, by the Fafafina character of Simone. A teacher explained that Telesa was not only the first book the students had read about Pacific Islander teenagers, but it was also the first time they had encountered a third gender character on the page. Now, what I didn't know is that the school had recently won a national award in the USA for being the safest school in the nation for LGBTQI students, for taking a leading role in making sure that all students in their community feel safe and are treated with respect. I met many gender diverse students that day who just wanted to sit next to me and chat about their experiences growing up and ask me about what it's like in Samoa and share their delight in seeing third gender characters in the books. It was an incredibly humbling experience for me, especially because I'm certainly no expert on our Fafafine and Fa'atama community. I wrote third gender characters into my books because they're the reality of our life in Samoa and Pacifica, the reality in our families. It makes me sad that doing so would be something so unusual and so eagerly embraced by youth who are hungry for positive representations. I was reminded in that visit how important it is for all children to be able to read books that are safe spaces for them, and of my responsibility as a storyteller to try harder and do better in my future writing. The reality is that too many of the castle-sanctioned great literary reads are harmful with their representations of the marginalized other. Ijeoma Oluo, author of New York Times bestseller, So You Want to Talk About Race, said in an interview, in the age of the internet, people have been able to find authentic and diverse voices beyond the reach of publishing gatekeepers. Once you read authenticity for yourself, you can no longer be fooled into accepting facsimiles. In the age of fake news, people are desperate for real voices. So, what do all these changes mean for the young reader today? Today, I sit and I read Little House on the Prairie to my youngest child, Bella, and she stops me with a frown. Mom, where's the Native American people? Isn't that their land that Laura's family keeps taking? We read a Narnia book together, and she shakes her head in disapproval. How come there's no black people in this book? I know there's lots of black people in England. At the close, she says, it's a good story, but they left a lot out. She can see what's missing. 
who is not there. Today's generation is far more discerning than we ever were. They are hashtag woke. And because of that, they are unwilling to accept tired tropes and stale stereotypes. So what does Bella read by choice, then? She loves books. Um, her earlier favorite is the 26-story treehouse, because it's funny and has comic sketches as well as words. But, she adds, it fails the DuVernay test because all the people in it are white. So that's not so great. Her current read is Veronica Roth's Carve the Mark. She refuses to read my Telesar books because she says, I already know everything that's going to happen. We had to listen to you talk about them all the time when you were writing them. She reads manga, Japanese anime comic strips online. She writes her own using an app that she's downloaded to her iPad. She has another app for writing her own books, which she illustrates with photos that she takes of her siblings when they're not looking. She watches Korean dramas, huge fan of K-dramas, and she has to read all the English subtitles, so I count that as reading a visual text. At school with her friends, they are writing an ongoing adventure drama where they are all superheroes in this story. And when she gets in the car at the end of the day, I listen to her talk excitedly about that day's installment, and I am in awe of the complex world-building that these 11-year-olds are engaging in. It's world-building that includes discussions about racism, gender, and even Donald Trump's latest. I am reminded that while they may not be reading a dusty copy of War and Peace, like what I did, and wondering what the heck is going on, these young people are not lacking in stories and creative thinking. They may not be reading what we did, or even how we did, but they are reading critically, and they are writing stories with fierce creativity. The digital age does not mean that print books are dead. It's not about one or the other. It's about both. Researcher Marianne Wolf has said that we are in a hinge moment between print and digital cultures. She says we need to cultivate a new kind of brain, a biliterate reading brain that's capable of the deepest forms of thought in either digital or traditional mediums. I am hopeful that Bella and her friends are a good example of what that biliterate reading brain might look like in practice. Parents and teachers, we have a key part to play in cultivating that kind of brain in our youth. On my book tours to different countries, I am often hosted by Pacifica communities. I've had the opportunity to meet many parents who are passionate about making sure their children are reading books, especially books where we are the center. They buy the e-books, then they drive two hours to bring their kids to a book signing so they can meet a Samoan author in person, and then they buy print copies for the entire family as well. I'm grateful for dedicated teachers who read our stories with students, organize author visits, and are constantly seeking new ways to incorporate the digital world into their classroom learning. What about for publishers? Does the digital age spell death and doom for all publishers? No, not all of them anyway. There has never been a greater need for the support and guidance that a good publisher can offer authors. But to thrive in this age, 
Publishers must be innovative. There was a time when publishers wouldn't go near a self-published writer. Oh, no, no, no. And they certainly wouldn't think of doing limited rights book deals. Last year, I signed a hybrid contract with an amazing New Zealand published company, One Tree House Press, where I retain all my digital, audio, and film book rights, and they take print rights. They have opened doors I couldn't open on my own and are taking my books to new audiences. It was kind of nerve-wracking for me to hand over any control of my books after being in charge of them for so long. But so far, we are working in a partnership. We have a shared vision for my books, and that's how it should feel when you are working with a publisher. I am in awe of publishers like Huya and Little Island Press that do so much to nurture and develop diverse writers in New Zealand. I know that there's others like them. The Māori Literature Trust are not a publisher, but their work is so vital to the growth of New Zealand literature, and we have many more novels and stories because of them. To others in the New Zealand book world, publishers, reviewers, literary organizations, and award trusts, a few words of advice from a fiapoto. Adapt or die. <laughs> if your staff hiring practices aren't diverse, then change them. When your staff are a blur of white bread homogeneity, then most likely your book list, your reviews, and your award winners will be also. If you don't publish any Māori, Pacific Islander, or Asian and Indian writers, or review any, then you are participating in their deliberate silencing. Ask yourself, why is that? Take concrete steps to fix it. Not only because it's the right thing to do, although it is, but because your business and your organization won't survive otherwise. As author Amberlynn Kwai Molina put it, there is a limit to how long literature can peddle the fantasy of a non-diverse world to readers who are living in a diverse reality. Readers are waking up. If you don't change, you'll become obsolete. And as in a great Rachel Hunter ad used to say, it may not happen overnight, but it will happen. Finally, a few words for writers in this digital age, particularly we of the preferably unheard variety. Albert Wendt has said, we need to write, paint, sculpt, weave, dance, sing, and think ourselves into existence. For too long, other people have done it for us. We have to write our own stories. Very true. But I don't think just writing our own stories is enough because there are still so many castle keepers who tell us what's good enough to publish and what isn't, what counts as literature, what's marketable, and what isn't. Yes, we must write our own stories, but we must also be strong enough and fiercely creative enough to ensure that those stories are not deliberately silenced. How do we do this? Remember, the internet is your friend. Yes, submit your book to agents, if that's your vision. But don't sit around moping while you wait for publishers to see how amazing your work is. Start a blog. Join online writer groups. Work on your craft. 
Write fan fiction, build a following, connect with others who are writing like you. There's strength and fire in numbers. Form a collective, cross-promote each other's work, publish an anthology together, take a multimedia approach to your writing, and then you can engage with a wider audience. Put your short stories for free download on Amazon. Start growing your readership. By the time your amazing novel is published, you will already have a dedicated circle of readers who love what you write and are eager to snap up your book. Be entrepreneurial. Too often writers are like, we just can't even think about money, it's about art. Okay? Learn about indie publishing. Recognize that it is not either or. If you self-publish a book, it does not mean that you are forever put into a box stamped, untouchable, only losers live here. The digital age means more choice, more power and control in our hands to write whatever we want to, breaking any and all of the literary rules, if that's what you want to do. It means the power to publish and distribute those stories, to have an impact on the conversation, and to critique the structures that systematically smother us. In saying that, my appeal to all of us, Pasvika, Mahdi, is to be mindful of the ways that we can gatekeep each other, of how we can internalize white castle thinking and become complicit in our own silencing. What do I mean? When we say things like, oh, she's not a real Tongan because she grew up in New Zealand, or his book isn't Samoan enough, or their poetry is too graphic and rude to be pacifica, what do we even mean by that? Where are we getting these arbitrary standards from? Who appointed you the cultural identity police? Or when we buy into the single story, the categorization of Māori or Pacific literature as being only one kind of genre and there being only one type of Māori or Pacific writer. And when we adopt the sneer of castle keepers towards indie authors and their e-books. For example, I have been asked by brown literary academics, Lani, when are you going to write a real novel? because the 11 that I already have don't count as real novels. I have sat in the front row at conferences and listened to brown experts talk about how sad it is that there's nobody else writing Pacific literature anymore. Hello, I'm right here. And I can give you a list of names of my Samoan indie author friends. Just because the white castle keepers believe that only three of us should exist at any given time, that doesn't mean that we should think that also. We need to support and raise each other up, whether we're writing literary novels or genre fiction, whether we have gained golden ticket admission to the castle, or we are out there navigating the vast ocean beyond its walls. To conclude, if the dream is for a New Zealand canon of literature that is intersectional, that is truly representative of all of us, then the answer is not found in the castle. It's out there, in the lush foliage of the unregulated rainforest that teems with life, 
or even further to the beckoning blue. Just as our ancestors left the safety of familiar shores and voyaged across thousands of miles of the Moana, we too can look beyond the horizon of what we are accustomed to and venture out into the unknown. Digital publishing is the fastest, most affordable way to take the stories of our blue continent to the world. On our own terms, no walls, no gatekeepers. Will it be overwhelming at times? A bit scary? Yeah, probably. Will it be hard work and require that you learn lots of new skills? Definitely. Will you make millions of dollars? No, <laughs> you won't. But you'll put food on the table with your writing. Maybe not steak and lobster every night, but, you know, a can of tuna, some rice, some bread, maybe. Will you feel sometimes like you are sinking under the load of doing marketing and promotion and blogging, as well as trying to write fabulous new stories all at the same time? Like, this is too much. It's too hard. Yes, there will be those days when it's too hard. But after 10 years of writing in the wild, I promise you that it can also be glorious. Because out there, away from the castle lights, you can see the stars. Vafzai lava.